Hey everyone, and welcome to the House Conspiracy Podcast, a show about the house and on the house. I'm Jonathan O'Brien, and I'm the founding creative director at House Conspiracy. Today I'm talking to Julia Scott Green about the world, the whole world, and it's more of a conversation than an interview than most of these podcasts, which is great. I think Julia and I sat down for about three hours and talked, and this is roughly 45 minutes to an hour of, of the long conversation that we had, and I have to say, Julia is a pleasure to explore topics with. Um, disclaimer, we did record this episode a while ago, and so I say the word mad a lot, and I have no idea why. Maybe it was in fashion a month ago, I'm not entirely sure, but Julia, on the other hand, is articulate and kind and considered. She is not even remotely mad. Now, of course, before we begin, just the regular housekeeping. Uh, you can subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts, and you can visit us at houseconspiracy.org to learn more about our artists and to see how we can support you. Also, join our mailing list. It's a good idea. And now, on to the show. Julia's studio is a room I would like to live in. By the window, she's set up a trestle table with a maybe faux animal pelt laid over it that she's using as a coaster for her mug and as a mat for her laptop. There's also a small pile of textbooks and a tiny colored vase on the windowsill which holds a single white rose that peers out over her desk as if it's trying to see what she's working on. On one wall of Julia's studio, there's a large white sheet hung as a backdrop for her to shoot her photographs. On the other side of the room is a tripod, no camera. This is Julia's main practice, photography. And at the moment, she's particularly interested in capturing small flickering moments of light cast across a wall or a room or an object. And so it's fitting that on Julia's desk, with a radiant rainbow cover, there's a book titled Light with an exclamation mark. And now, with an exclamation mark of her own, here's Julia Scott Green. Imagine if people gave their money to the most, oh, well, I guess they do, the most evil causes. Do people give money to evil causes, aside from, like, the Republican Party? Yeah. I guess you can even describe the monetization of weapons research as being, like, potentially benevolent in its own strange way. I don't actually agree with what I just said. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because people don't... But, like... People don't really, I mean, the government puts money towards weapons research, which is our tax money. Mm -hmm. But then you look at weapons research and like every good, not every good, but like most social goods have come and like tech advances have come from weapons research. Oh, tech advances. Yeah, for sure. I guess as well thinking about the Cold War and how. Oh man, that was a bad time. (laughs) Yeah, but like having a lot of weapons cancelled out the other guys' loads of weapons. And so it can also have like a positive impact, which is whack. Except the positive impact is only positive. It's no more positive than if it hadn't happened at all. Yeah. So it's not better than the status quo. No. Um, And, you know, it doesn't, it hasn't stopped everything. Because, I mean, look at North Korea firing fucking Mm. missiles over the top of Japan. I know. That's so crazy. It's real spooky. It's real spooky. Spooky is a good word for it. Yeah. (laughs) Spooky behavior. I wake up every day and I search on the news app. I search for North Korea and I go, all right, 
how how bad is it? How bad is it today? <laughs> how bad is it today? Yeah. Yeah, and then I learned that Kim Jong Un usurped the throne from his half brother. Whoa. Yeah. Who would have been like Kim Jong Un, I think. <laughs> no, not Un. It was like Kim Kim Jong Na, I think. It's just a semantic joke, like. No, 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 because cause Kim Jong is the last name. Yeah, like, yeah. Because it's Un, it, and then it was Ill, and then it was Fa. Kim Jong Fa, maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure. It's a whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> North Korea is a really scary North place. North Korea, yeah, it's really scary, yeah. Yeah. But most of what you hear about it is, like, really racist. Like, yeah. all the stuff that's, like, well, not racist. That's not the right term. But it's all misinformation. Like, the idea, like, th- there was that whole thing that went around, like, men are being forced to have Kim Jong-un's haircut. Not true. That didn't mm-hmm. happen. Like, a lot of it is just wacky facts that get sent out, which is weird because it's a really horrible situation. Yeah, But it we're getting a lot of wacky... Like, yeah, wow, look like how novelty kooky facts. It is. Yeah, it's yeah. like they don't think he has a butthole. Yeah, that's weird how the media does that. It's like they're trying to appeal to what the audience wants to read as opposed to just give you the facts. <laughs> yeah, which I think we're seeing more and more of as like entertainment and journalism yeah. overlap. I was um, weirdly, uh, don't ask me how I got to here, but last semester I was teaching a news analysis course at uq huh yeah which was weird yeah cool that sounds like a good course it was good even though it was way out of my um area area of study and um interest probably uh it was really good to be up to date on how journalism is functioning currently uh obviously i think a lot of it was pretty straightforward like most of us can see what's happening it's very obvious, but to get into the nitty gritty details of it, which was mm. new for me. And every week, so many readings to catch up on and being like, wow, this is a really, really complex moment in history for information. Yeah, <laughs> well, because we have more of it than ever before. Mm-hmm. And it, we thought that would solve our problems. Mm. And it hasn't. No. It hasn't at all. Talking about that that sort of blend and that that shift, um, sort of towards like entertainment and media appealing to what the audience want. I almost want to go back to that that chat about Goma Ten that we were having. Goma Ten, <laughs> but like, it's sort of not maybe not like directly talking about that exhibition, um, but um, the idea of like giving people what they want versus curating and giving them, you know. It's like that that Kanye West line uh, on Jesus, where he, he samples a children's choir singing, "Oh, we won't we won't give them what we want, but he'll give us what we need." Mm-hmm. And I wonder, um, like, what's the is there a value in, and is there is it a dangerous shift towards giving people what they want, or is that what we should do as artists? <laughs> is give people what they want? Yeah. Yeah, or should we? be blindsiding and challenging and I know that's that's weird that's a weird space to be in I think to give people what they want um because then you don't I mean I don't know do you lose sight of what I've certainly been guilty of attempting to give people what they want when I was younger Mm. particularly um and my only testament to doing the opposite to that is the work that I've made 
that has longevity for me personally as like my taste evolves and as I get older and whatever is work that I made just for no one else but me. Um, and that, I mean, I don't know whether that resonates with you as a writer. If did you, do you find if you write something for someone else, it has a certain pizzazz to it because you're sort of, you're really pulling, pulling out like a whole mm. another level of expertise inside yourself to appease an audience. But when you do a, something just for yourself, do you feel like it has more? Well, I mean, there's like, there's meaning. that. Yeah, I mean, there's what we were talking about before, which was like compartmentalizing, right? Like going like, well, that's that form of photography is advertising mm. photography and whatnot. And it's like, you do that with writing, obviously, like doing copywriting jobs. It's like, even when I've done creative, like storytelling copywriting jobs, um, which are rare and a lot of fun because you get paid to you get paid a lot of money to be fun. creative and have a bit of fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I've, yeah, I can actually share like a very prescient example actually um, that speaks to what you're saying, which is I wrote, there was a, there was a comp, there was a certain competition that I, I won't call out, but the winning story always tends to be pretty similar. There's and like a formula. That there's they a, there's like. a formula, and there's a formula. I think I think in a lot of Australian literature, there's this there's this certain formula, and it's usually there's a broken family, a death, and um, it's written from a young person's perspective. Mm-hmm. Like those three things, two out of three of those things essentially occur in most. I would say like. Most or, like, a large enough, like, 40% number of, like, award-winning stories, two out of three of those things appear. So Um, the country has an obsession with trauma? I don't know if the country has an obsession with trauma. I think think they're just easy in the same way that, like, films that won the Oscars sort of, especially through the 90s and 2000s, were pretty similar in that sort of King's Speech way Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where it's, like... These themes, like, just win audiences. And in cinema, it's different. You know, it's an older crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is that sort of, like, reading reading the landscape through that lens, I was like, oh, fuck, well, I'll just write a similar-ish story hitting on two out of three of those points. And as a result, it's like I tried to convince myself it was good, um, but I don't think it was. And I submitted it for the prize. And I didn't get anywhere. Like... Like it was, I think it got long listed, but like it, you know, and then it's a story that it's like, I just hate myself for writing. Yeah. Um, so you, I think, yeah, I think that's exactly that sort of thing. Like when you're younger, cause this was a few years ago now, when you're younger, you just like, you capitulate a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you look for patterns that you can manipulate, m- but mold your work. But if you're not toward. being honest, your work's going to suck. Yeah. Like, and that's, that's the key thing I think is honesty. Like, I think you can engage with those themes if they're honest. And, you know, even if, you know, I feel as a reader that those stories are repetitive and blah, 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 blah. They're also, they're not bad stories, especially if you're reading them for sort of the first time. I mm-hmm. just, I'm just confused because I don't think the judges are. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you actually um, a similar question around sort of the uh, the the sort of shift like, from 
I think where I was going with that, with that question before was shifting from entertainment. Like, do you see a difference between, cause obviously we see a difference between entertainment and journalism, right? Like, like there's mm-hmm. a difference there and we understand that. Um, because you know, one deals in facts, please. Um, <laughs> and one, 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 one deals in keeping eyeballs glued to a screen and often facts aren't, you know, hugely engaging. Um, do you see a difference, a meaningful difference between art and entertainment? Do you, do you see, like, is there an advantage in the overlap? Where does the overlap occur? Is there a way to actually define it? Or is this another thing, like, when we tried to talk about whether art was good about an hour ago and we just both stumbled over our own tongues? Yeah, it's so <laughs> tough. Um, art and entertainment. Yeah, yeah like, is there a, is there a, a meaningful difference. definition between them? Yeah. Um, Man, I don't know. I when going thinking about that Goma Ten mm. discussion, it seems like uh, it seems like it's all dependent on what gets ratings and audience numbers. So I guess in that in that framework, art has to be entertainment to some degree. Otherwise, how will institutions function or stay open or? Um, it seems like the art that's not entertaining, um, whether it be visually arresting or, you know. Right. Um, you need to sort of broaden your definition of entertainment, entertainment, right? Yeah. Like I almost think that maybe the better word is engaging and then entertainment in the traditional sense is a form of engagement and, mm-hmm. and a valid one. Mm-hmm. Um, like the dot room at Goma, you know. The dot room, yeah, by... Um, Oh, man. I'm terrible yeah, at artist K- names. Kasama? Yeah, Kasama. I think I've pronounced her name incorrectly. Um, yeah, that would be incredibly entertaining to be in a space like that, particularly if you're a kid. Mm. So I guess in that case, um, she's taken something that is deeply personal to her and then manifested it in a way that people can actually engage with for like longer than two seconds so that they can get a sense of what her experience is but again I think it's really tough because it depends on what the purpose of the artwork is does it is it artwork that's trying to shock you or like for what reason and yeah it's really tough and when you when you say like the purpose of the artwork do you mean like do you mean in terms of like a perp how how do you how do you determine what what that purpose is as a viewer um Maybe oh, like if you're a viewer and you're trying to understand what the artwork's doing. Well, if or, we're gonna if we're gonna talk about artists' artwork in terms of purpose, which I actually think is useful until you ask how do you determine purpose, purpose. and then it becomes yeah. a bit of a mess. <laughs> we're getting really stuck on the meaning of words. It's look, it's such it's a so, it's such a circular conversation. It's really yeah, hard. it's really art's really awkward for that reason. I think, mm-hmm. and I often so get stuck in my own circle of. What is the purpose of self-expressing when there is also, you know, political engagement that is required to actually change things? But then I go back to art having a really great ability to affect internal changes in people, mm-hmm. which then maybe will manifest in a, you know, more Well, the group external. is made up of individuals, yeah, right? Yeah, so it's, yeah, so it's weird. And also, again, like what, you know, individual individuality is tough to deal with and um, because you want to, you know, it's not maybe as productive. 
it's maybe better to work as a cohort. I don't know. It's all like so if you think about those things, what is art, you know, what is the purpose of art? I I just know that I do it and compulsively yeah. have done since I can remember. Yeah, that's the and thing. And that's right? just my that's just a language that I have. Um, and whether it's been good or not hasn't really mattered. I've just done it. You said that you were introduced to photography in high school. So, um, when, what were you, what were you doing when you were younger? Like what, like you were doing art since you could remember what else were you, what were you doing in your formative sort of years? Um, I guess as a kid, just always painting and making things and just, you know how some homes, some kids, they just have parents who like sit them down in front of a a play area, um, you know, and they just, you know, here's paints and a bunch of different materials and you do what you want to do. So maybe my upbringing was just more geared to that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't have a good answer for you. But in terms of you what I was... You have to have a good answer. Yeah. I was like... You know what a good answer is? Honesty. Honesty, yeah. <laughs> well, if I'm honest, in high school, I was really involved in performing arts yeah right and I was doing musical theater and I was dancing full-time and the visual had really no um grab on me no hold on me and it wasn't until I moved to Brisbane that I came into a environment where performing arts was really like invisible Melbourne in Melbourne in high school performing arts is like at the center that, of the city that's interesting do you do you think performing arts is invisible in Brisbane when I came to Brisbane in late high school which was like 2006 yeah okay it was and this particular school I, I couldn't went tell to, you a single thing about 2006 that's fine no yeah I wasn't alive then I yeah, wasn't yeah you were in utero <laughs> I was in utero in 2006 it's yeah yeah it's insane that's weird um I'm 11 <laughs> Um, you're doing pretty well for 11. Yeah, thanks. I'm the only 11 year old to eat avocados and own a house. Yeah. (laughs) Good one. Um, but yeah, performing arts in Brisbane or maybe the particular part of Brisbane Mm. that I got chucked into had nothing performing arts wise. And and, yeah. And I think that's maybe, yeah, a better articulation of it is that the arts, each arts segment of Brisbane despite the fact how tiny all of them are Mm. really segregated super segregated whereas in Melbourne it seems to be more of an overlap the identity of the city comes from its arts and therefore every school seems to be engaging with it whereas here it was certainly not the case and then I just threw myself into visual art because it was the sort of next best thing and ended up doing really well with that and wanting to pursue it more seriously so yeah 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 right yeah that's yeah that's interesting because I remember yeah when I got to university performing arts was the thing that was all around me but then I think it's like just the people I happen to meet and that's often the thing right is that you fall into it I want to go back to to the purpose of art because I want to just like the purpose of art and entertainment (laughs) no 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 no. I just want to I want to throw something out there because I know like you said you wanted this to be a bit more of a conversation I want to throw out this idea that like I've been having and thinking about and really meditating on and I think I find it really compelling is that the maybe the purpose of art is to teach you how to see to see it do I but is is are we yeah are we talking about visual art because there's a lot of art that doesn't even no like how to see in terms of like how to in the same like to to perceive and act in the world Mm -hmm. and how you 
engage with things, you know, not only in their sort of physical form, but in their conceptual form. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a great book will teach you how to read complicated relationships and read in the, in the way that you see people talking to each other in a certain way and you begin to understand that more. Mm -hmm. Or great photography, you know, can teach you to notice small details. Mm -hmm. And a great painting can teach you to see a new configuration of the world and a good conceptual piece of art can teach you how to, to see the world through maybe like a, a, a more like sort of maybe a feminist or a more deconstructive lens and it's these different ways of seeing i don't know if you've seen john burgess yeah 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 was, it's almost like, it's he almost just drop like ways that. of seeing <laughs> <Ayo>. <laughs> good one yeah burgess great yeah that was my first um i think that was like my first introduction to visual art actually was the Burgess Ways, ways of, seeing. of Seeing? Yeah. The show or the book? Presumably the, the show. show. Yeah. Incredible show. One yeah. of the best. But anyway, that's my current working definition. I don't know if you think that holds any weight, but I've just been holding it in my head for a little bit. That what art's per yeah, what art is does. To teach you how to see. Teach you how to see, yeah. I guess um I don't really I think of art I'm as, not like asking you to like agree. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm thinking of my my sort of follow up what I think art is I think of art as being a really great way to look back through history and get a sense of what it was like to be alive in that time period mm -hmm. so I think it has a really great historical relevance for that reason whether it's aesthetic and you can get a sense of the dominant kind of tastes and tastes yeah and then conceptually what ideas were um, prominent in that time or what was missing, what ideas were wanting, were, were being wanted to like emerge. Um, because a lot of conceptual art has now become, or a lot of the ideas, sorry, posited by conceptual art from like, I'm thinking like, you know, late 60s, yep. 70s, have now just kind of become the normal way we think. Yes. So at the time there was a lack there and that's what emerged and now we've adopted it pr pretty readily. So I don't know, maybe it's just about looking back at the time, like what it's like to be in that time period. But then, because I think that's, I think art as particularly like given that a lot of your work is in uh, photo documentarianism. Um, I don't know if that's the real way of saying it. No, I liked I, it. It sounded very professional. It sounds nice. Yes. Like, I'm sitting here with photo documentarian <laughs> Julia Scott Green. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, here on ABC Conversation Hour with me, Richard Feidler. Um, uh, ABC will strike us for copyright now. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, yeah, that that makes sense. Like, sort of in terms of your lens, I think that's I think that's a really compelling thing. But it makes then what then how does that working definition um, fit in with say a contemporary modern art gallery, mm -hmm. like an opening for new works by Marina Abramovic? Yeah. Well, uh, for instance, man, I, I don't know. I saw Marina, uh, a work that she did in at the Serpentine Gallery when uh -huh. I was in London. Um, I want to so badly remember the name of the exhibition for you, but I can't right now. But um, up until that point, I'd sort of seen her as being, I obviously fantastic, but really commercialized. 
Mm-hmm. So every everyone was just embracing her work and it seemed like the new hot thing. It's like a cult of personality exactly. around her. Yeah. yeah, and that's easily like capitalism loves that. So all the galleries jumping on board, people, they get a great audience and that's how I was kind of interpreting it. But then I went to the um, performance work and it was so affecting. Yeah. It taught me stuff that I had never even that I'd only read about and then she was sort of forcing the audience to participate in these ideas. So she had like all these different rooms. One room was where you had to hold hands with a stranger and walk really slowly up and down the room and it was like weirdly really intimate and another room was full of army cots where you would get in the – where sorry, a – um. Uh, gallery assistant would um, tuck you into bed but they're a stranger but it was again like really intimate and also it's completely silent and you had to wear sound cancelling headphones the whole time right um there was another one where they would come over uh, a gallery assistant would come over and grab your hand and take you up onto a podium and stand there and just hold hands with you in silence for however long until they decide to let go and again like really really intense intimacy and um yeah that completely changed my perspective on her work my friend that I went with had to leave the room after five minutes because he was too overwhelmed by like it was just such an intense it was too raw yeah Mm. he went outside and sat down and then we had to wait for him to like regain his composure and go back in for, and then we went in for like six hours. Yeah, wow. We didn't even realize we'd been in for so long. Six hours. So work that that's that is that immersive and that forces you to change the way you are, like ch- change your state, mm-hmm. is really cool. Um, so yeah, maybe in that regard, art can be really great for um, teaching you how to see. Yeah, see in sort of the broad sensorial and engagement sense. Teaching you new ways of thinking about things. Or yeah, exactly, like, yeah. exactly. Well, seeing and thinking are like so, like, I mean, that's why we've yeah. got the the saying, the mind's eye, oh, yeah. right? But yeah, that's that's just been my, my working sort of definition lately. And I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's, I, I wish I'd seen that work. That sounds incredible. I'd love to see a, a, a marina work in general though. Yeah, because did, did you watch the documentary on her um where people were sitting across from her at a table and she would stare like stare at them in the eye the artist is present was the name of the documentary i didn't know it was released as a documentary actually i heard about the work yeah i know shia labeouf then did a similar yeah with the paper bag over his head yeah (laughs) i don't know what shia labeouf is doing um yeah shia labeouf did a similar sort of thing but I think his was in reaction to I think didn't he produce a film that was completely plagiarized and then the media cottoned on to it so he was apologizing for his he, it shame was, it was shameful he, plagiarism I think he was wearing a paper bag that said I am sorry on it. I am yeah yeah and people <clears throat> apparently went in there and like beat him up and stuff yeah, yeah. and he just let it happen yeah. he wouldn't react to anything and Marina did work like that mm. early on in her career where she allowed people to like put a gun to her head and stuff. Um, So I guess, yeah, he was definitely responding to her work for sure. Yeah. Yeah, conceptual art, huh? Conceptual. Yeah, performance art's a whole other 
I don't know. Yeah, I performance art is just it's so incredibly hit and miss. Yeah, I think um, for me a lot of it, but yeah, the stuff that's really good, like. It's the same as theater and like, I mean, you were, you were in performing arts. Like it's that when you hit that transcendent moment where audience and person on stage sort of meld almost. Mm -hmm. And it has to be immersive. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, however, whatever way you manage to make it immersive, like whether it's because it's interactive or because of the lighting, who knows, whatever it is. But yeah, it's hard. I kudos to anyone doing performance arcs that would be tough yeah exhausting exhausting I imagine. like yeah. that shit looks exhausting yeah um like i had a friend who sat and was a fountain for four hours like she sat in a kiddie pool and then had a hose that would run water to her mouth and she'd fill her mouth with it until her mouth was full and then she'd spit it in an arc and it would land in a bucket is your friend Marissa? Yeah, she yeah. was in the in residence show for the Bari Festival with me last year. There you go. And her work in that show was about a fountain too. It was like mm. a water installation. Yeah. It was so good. And yeah, yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. she had a rainbow, like a water rain. Oh man, I can't remember. I'm sorry, Marissa, if you're listening to this, exactly what. But yeah, that was really great. I'd love to see her perform like her perform because that was just an installation it was funny i ran into her in newcastle at the same festival i'm going to on the on the weekend national young writers festival as part of tina which is this is not art festival Mm -hmm. i don't know why it's called that but it is this is not art and there's also uh critical critical animals i think is the art part and then there's crack theater festival and there's national young writers festival okay wow busy is this all in newcastle it's all in newcastle it's all in one weekend okay from thursday to sunday that's a huge itinerary for one weekend yeah yeah it's massive like you yeah you'll get lost in it but yeah i just ended up at a an art launch and then marisa was just on the deck in a fountain That's how you saw the work. You just stumbled into it. I just stumbled into it. I didn't, I wasn't looking for Marisa, but there she was. Wow. Yeah. It was really fun. Um, that's, I, I, I really, I really love showing up to, to works, you know, be it a, you know, reading a book, be it seeing a film, be it going to a gallery and knowing nothing. Mm -hmm. I'd much rather know nothing. By the way, how cool is it that you went to an interstate festival and you bumped into a Brisbane practitioner? That's so nice. I love hearing about uh, you know, it's always a bit of a you wonder exciting yeah. thing to hear about Brisbane crew getting out of town because so many of the opportunities in the arts here, I feel, are based on nepotism. <laughs> like everyone just knowing somebody. I and feel like most of the arts is based on nepotism. For sure, but I mean, if you can get in a recognition interstate or internationally, then you've obviously kind of. You, maybe you're doing something right. Yeah. Or I want to say you're doing something right. Yeah, I think so. I think you are. I, th- I think you're, I think, I think it's key to sort of get out of your own ecosystem. For sure. And yeah. then like equally getting out of your ecosystem earns you respect within that ecosystem because you seem less dependent upon it. And that's talking in a very sort of business sense. Like, I mean, the way we assess our applications has nothing to do with nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. But like, it really doesn't. Like the number of friends I've rejected and just mm-hmm. like just like sent the same 
shitty copy and paste rejection email. Yeah. Um, not that it's a that shitty email. It's a great email. email yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Like I, yeah, it's like, it's like, and we all have all of us on the, all of us on the, um, on the panel have rejected people that we know. And oh, that's, that's really hard then. Cause Brisbane's small. So you'd know well, most of the applicants. Not most surprisingly. Really? Like that's one of the coolest things about this place is that it hasn't just attracted a who's who. And nice. Compared to most play, like, I don't want to call it out, but uh, compared to what you would expect, we've had a much more diverse demographic in terms of sort of like, like, I think everyone's nailing a lot of diversity. Like it's the buzzword. Everyone's fine at it. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But what's been interesting here is the diversity of ages Mm -hmm. of people. Yeah. Like next residency we have, no, not next residency, two residencies time we have two artists who are like mid 20s and we have two artists who are like mid 50s wow i think that that might be because you guys don't you specifically state from memory that age isn't an issue for you but it's more about what your your terms and conditions sorry um yeah sorry your definition of emerging yeah which is so inclusive because it's so stupid and so many people are only age um oriented like you can only enter this competition if you're under 30 you can only get this fellowship if you're going to get this grant exactly whereas you guys were taking a totally different approach which is i think very forward thinking and i think but i think about it you know particularly i watched a documentary called come worry with us which is about this uh punk band in canada called the silver mount zion memorial orchestra um (laughs) that's a mouthful (laughs) fucking rad one of my favorite bands um but a lot of the documentary focuses on womanhood, motherhood, motherhood and art and how there are very few women over 30 and 40 or particularly in their 30s in art because they, they be- can't. They're because they can't. Having, they're having to raise children. Yeah, and I've yeah. spoken with, uh, you know, amazing artists like Rachel Wellish. I don't know if you know her. She was in the last cycle. Um, she the spectacular blue room. Oh yes, sorry, three. I saw the photos of her work. Yeah, yeah, she's she's astounding. But you know, she's just as emerging as someone out of university in their in their twenties. And mm. you know, she's one of the best ones. And she's not going to be able to get emerging artist grants. You know, a lot of them because she's over thirty, which mm-hmm. feels. You know, like you can call it forward thinking or whatever, but I don't I don't think it's like particularly forward thinking. I think it we're just confronting a certain reality that one's one's career is no longer okay, so maybe it is forward thinking. I don't know, but one's career is no longer linear. No, for sure. Yeah. And so you like if you learn how to swim at forty, you're still in the same learn to swim class as twelve year olds. Mm-hmm. And like sometimes that can be hard if you're 40, but it's true because you're at that level and it's okay because if you actually really want to learn and you're really engaged, then it's not going to matter to you that everyone else is younger and it hasn't mattered, Mm. you know, with the massive age disparities that we've had in single residency cycles. Have you heard of the art critic Jerry Saltz? No. He, I think you're like... Just this little story about him because it, I think it's really related to the your concept of emerging here at House Conspiracy. He was a long-distance truck driver until he was in his early 40s, I think the story goes, 
and he always loved art, had tried making it as an artist in his 20s, nothing had come about. So he kind of kept his love for it and wanted to get into art criticism instead. And now he, and, and so, sorry, one day he quit his long distance truck driving mm-hmm. and just, I think, like maybe moved to New York and gave it a red hot crack. And he's now one of the leading critics. I think he writes for the New Yorker, New Yorker. still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And his wife is also like one of the most important art critics in America, um, who's, I think her surname's Smith. What's her first name? Um, I'm the worst with names, but um, yeah, it's really good, really nice narrative. I think that he spreads like really avidly because it's just a, like a reminder that if you do something in your 20s, it doesn't have to define you for the rest of your life. You can start again and do something else. And emer- emerging art artist grants or awards are really narrow-minded for that reason. Yeah, they're yeah, missing out on a whole bunch of talent too, which sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean for sure, right? Like I'd give Rachel all my money. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. There you go. But uh, yeah, it's it's. I I think about like a similar story with like, and this is kind of a different angle on that same thing. So I'll share. Uh, Charles Bukowski mm-hmm. is a, a famous writer. Um, he wrote a novel called Post Office, which is regarded to be one of the greatest American novels ever. I haven't read it. <laughs> but, but he talks about having a shitty life. And he's like, oh, very blessed to have a shitty life. And he talks like this. Like, I spent, you know, 30 years working in a post office. And I spent, you know, 30 years toiling away and working, you know, a regular person's job and just slaving away and just doing it. And then he says, and if I hadn't, I wouldn't have had the things to write about. I yeah. would have, and he, you know, he talks about the people in the, he's like, and, and you know, this, I don't think this is a rule for all people, but I think it is something to consider is he talks about like all the writers who sort of like write their hit novel at 23 mm-hmm. and then for the rest of their life, they're in the art crowd mm-hmm. and they're hanging out with artists and they run out of things to write about. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that is an interesting perspective that I think, you do sometimes see people get caught up in. I don't know what you think of that. Yeah, as in people getting caught up in... I'm not even interested in that. Like maybe more the benefit of experience and and almost like the actual mad benefit in emerging later. Yeah. Like... Well, maybe um, that you could argue that there is an advantage to emerging later because you've got a better grip on what is going on in the world. Then again, though, like who who has a grip on it? But if you're uh, yeah, older, older, you people. certainly have way more yeah. to bring to the table. I always like thinking of Louis C.K. Old people, Be- older people are smarter. Yeah, that's it. Mean, <laughs> uh, from his 2017 show. Yeah. Uh, no, oh, no, it's no, not. No, 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 it's an older one. No, it's, it's an, an old one. one. I was watching a bunch of Louis C.K. clips the other day. God, he's so Same. he's the best one. The best, and because he was so shit when he was younger, yeah. like. He says it himself, but if you go back and watch his early stand-up, it's painful. Mm. But he just kept at it. And then he got rejected a bunch of times for TV shows. And, I mean, I don't know why we're focusing on maybe this is me sort of like fingers crossed, you know, there's always like opportunities in the future. But I do really like the – and I also – I don't want to be backing tall poppy syndrome. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong Mm. with – achieving highly from a young age like I celebrate all 
yeah, ages of you, achievement, but I just think that we should also pay respects to people from any age doing it, you know? I, I, yeah, and I think I think exactly on that, that sort of point. I want to ask you a question which is, like, loaded, I think. Um, but, like, how would you feel if you'd got mad acclaim off of a, whatever work you were making at the age of 20? How would I feel? Or where do you think you'd be? Do you think your work would be at the same level? Like looking back at that work, would you want that to be the work that defines your... No way. I think I think I was pretty stupid at 20. <laughs> um, I mean, no, I don't know. As well, I think I can be quite introverted too. I think if, if anything, I like being sort of it can maybe sound counterintuitive to what I'm doing now, trying to promote myself, but um, I'm trying to promote myself now because I want to be able to keep doing what I enjoy doing as opposed to because I'm interested in hitting a jackpot and then what, like being some sensation. I just really enjoy doing what I do. You want to be sustainable. You want to so be able I to sustain want, the career. Yeah, I just want to be able to do that full time. Um, if I'd achieved great success at 20, that would have been amazing of course like how I would never say otherwise but I think that my work at 20 was pretty unresolved in fact I think it still is pretty unresolved so um I don't know I can't say and so then how do you how do you sort of deal with like feeling or is this a feeling you have that like you sit there and you look at something and you're like I really like this but I know that one day, whether it be soon or in half a decade or a decade, I'll be making this but better. Is that a feeling that you have? Ever? Yeah, every day. And how do you reconcile that with actually putting things out into the world? Like, how do you how do you make yourself mm. do it? Um, that's a really good question. I actually tapped out for a while. Um, I stopped exhibiting. I was like, no, nah, I'm not participating in this art game anymore. Um, and I sort of needed that break because I was having that exact problem. I was like, okay, what am I making? Do I actually like it that much? Do I want to share it? Can I, I, I am hopeful and optimistic about my ability to improve my work and make better work in the future. Maybe I'll just take a step back, let these ideas gestate, hopefully come out the other side with some high quality work. Um, and so now I don't even know if I'm coming out the other side, but I'm just really excited about making work. So I really want to just do it all the time. So at the moment it's more, how do I just preserve that, that energy, that, um, not even the energy, but the means to make. Yeah. Right. Sorry. So yeah. now I'm, I get, now I care less about whether or not the work's good just cause I really want to make it. Mm -hmm. And if people think it's good, great. But otherwise I'm like, just give me some money so I can do it <laughs> yeah Brad. so I mean yeah when I also I also I moved to London as soon as I graduated from honors um which is kind of a really almost a silly decision to make because usually when you graduate from honors you want to develop your practice practice try Whereas and get moving in, to a place like London is all you're consuming. A no one yeah and you just get thrown into like the biggest pond in the world and I'm not going to lie, like, I will be honest, I applied for so many jobs over there in the arts industry for exhibitions, for all this stuff. And I got rejected 
hardcore. Like yeah. I was even told like what people looked at my um, CV and they're like, Queensland College of Art, like where the fuck's that, dude? Like yeah. you're in London. This is Goldsmith's territory. Yeah, Royal Goldsmith Academy territory. of Art. Like we got volunteers who can't even get volunteer jobs because – you know, this is like, the stakes were really high, right? Jesus. So I, I came home and I was kind of broke and I was like, whoa, Jesus, you know, like this is really, it was a real reality check. So um, ever since then I've sort of just been, now I really appreciate opportunities like this because I know that if I was in London that probably wouldn't um, exist for me unless I'd gone through a big reputable institution yeah. of course but yeah like a name that yeah can, the trick is what you do is you go to rmit in melbourne and you forget to type the r <laughs> that's <laughs> th- a good idea i think that's i think that's how you get jobs <laughs> it's, well rmit's now in i think it's like considered one of the top universities for the creative industries in the world yes Maybe it is it's like, their is writing degree 10? i hear is good yeah top mm. 10 or top 20 i, I don't know don't keep an eye Me on neither. it. Me neither. I just heard, the only reason why I thought about that was when I was working at UQ, UQ were really pushing the like top 50 Oh yeah, dude, QT will push it as well. Yeah, um, so it's like that, that shit matters to those guys. Yeah, oh, I mean it matters so much because it's a, it's a billboard. For you sure, know, yeah. The moment you have that, it's a billboard. Like, yeah. Number one MFA in the Southern Hemisphere, I uh, know MBA I think it is at QUT. Really, like the number one MBA in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, is, sorry, is MBA Masters? Masters of Business, of Business Administration. Administration. Yeah, which is the one that sort of everyone does because often people's work will pay for them to do an MBA as like uh, professional yeah. development. Of um, course. Yeah. When you were, um, did so? Did you go straight into writing at QUT? I didn't. So you are you new to writing then did you study no, writing I, sorry I, so I I'm like you I've used I've written my whole life and yeah. like I used to think computers were just for typing stories yeah um <laughs> which was a lovely and innocent way to be wait so did you say you thought computers were just for typing stories yeah that's so nice yeah that's... so it was all I thought they would you should do on them yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh before I was poisoned but because I thought like video games only existed on consoles and I wasn't allowed a console but like I'd play consoles at friends house and I didn't know like you could have a computer I was fucking dumb is what I'm saying sorry <laughs> <laughs> um, like, we all <laughs> but like like I didn't put two and two together or something um and so I've been writing my whole life like stories whole yeah forever so um but then I went to uni and I decided to go into film and um film and IT actually mm-hmm. so film and computer science degrees a dual degree um and I learned pretty quick that the film degree at QT is trash oh no sorry to hear that oh I mean the QCA one is great um I've heard it's really good actually. yeah, yeah. yeah. well they have the obviously the dedicated film school or mm-hmm. oh, they used to did yeah. they get rid of it I heard something like that but oh. maybe I'm making that up to be honest, probably I wouldn't be surprised because they've done a huge overhaul at Griffith and they've now got trimesters and yeah, the like whole trimester thing is still weird. Heaps of courses me out. are being changed. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyway, um, so yeah, and then I shifted to yeah, I shifted through a bunch of degrees. It was like long yeah. story short, like I did a year of psychology. Nice. How I was that? Uh, was bad. Really bad. Bad. Yeah. Oh, I've always wanted to study psychology. You will learn less about people than you think, and you will okay. learn more about anatomy. And you'll learn to memorize things. 
I've heard that the undergrad for psych is like that. Though, the undergrad and is terrible masters. and then postgrad is awesome. Great, yeah. I didn't have three years. I didn't have yeah, three yeah. years to, to – to, I'd rather do like through. an undergrad in something else and then convince someone to take me on as uh, honours uh-huh, yeah. in something like psych yeah. if I were to do it, which I don't at this point. No, yeah. Don't really think I would because, yeah, the undergrad was so just like – uh, tedious did you so you didn't do any writing subjects no and then i went so when i realized the film degree sucked i changed to a dual degree of writing and it and Got it. then after that i did a year of psych and then i went into the writing course and when you say writing was it creative writing yeah bachelor of fine arts creative and okay pro- creative and professional writing is writing. the official course title but there's one subject Dedicated to professional writing. So stop lying, QT. Stop lying. <laughs> stop lying. For the record. You yeah. have one subject about it. Sure. Yeah. Not <laughs> and very it's a helpful. Great subject. Okay. Well, that's good. Maybe that the subject's so good that they only need one. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> or maybe. <laughs> maybe you should have more than one. <laughs> more than one. Do you think you'd do postgrad? No. 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 I I don't <laughs> here we go. So this is why we don't make the podcast about me because I'm I'm grumpy all the time. So I have a lot of grumpy opinions. But I, <laughs> I like that. That's fun. I don't. I would rather just develop my practice. Yeah. Than waste, especially in writing, the thesis feels like a big old waste of time because with art and visual practice, at the very least, when you're doing the writing you're taking away from your general energy, but you're not taking away from your artistic energy as much. Mm. By which I mean, like, you're not... When you're writing... You're not competing with your practice. Right. It's, or you are, because it's, everything is time, and time is, like, the most valuable resource we have. Yeah. Um, but you're not in that sort of direct, like, siphoning. Like, I write so much for, like, house and, like, emails and, like, the podcast intros and whatnot, like... All of that that I do competes much more than if I say had a painting practice mm-hmm. and I could like, I'd still be exhausted and it would still compete with it, but it would be, I think easier to go home. Like it is easier to go home and like do some digital f- uh, Photoshop sort of work than it is to go home and write after you write all day. And yeah. So, it's like a change of state. At right. Least it's a change of state. If yeah. You're writing one thing and then you're still writing another thing later on. Yeah, exactly. So but, it's more of, it's the opportunity cost is more present. Sure. I'd never really thought of that. I guess in my, I, my impression was that your thesis would be your writing, but your because if it was a creative writing, mm. you still have to write a thesis justifying the frameworks yeah. and stuff of the creative. And it becomes kind of interesting. Like people write their theses where it's sort of just like, sometimes all sort of roles between or they'll have a chapter of their thesis and then like a creative piece and a chapter and a creative piece and a chapter and they'll mm-hmm. structure it like that. And so there are interesting ways of of doing it, but uh, I mean, they just cut honors at QUT actually. Yeah, right. I think I heard that recently. Maybe it was from you. It might, it might have been from, from me. From the um, um, residency dinner. Yeah, like. well, they, yeah, they've just, they've killed honors at QUT, which is a good decision because... Um, I think making like giving someone eight months to develop their practice in a meaningful way and write a meaningful thesis is silly. Like, what was it like for you? Oh man, I feel <laughs> like <laughs> um, I'm not alone. <laughs> I have a lot of great friends of mine who all went through the honors program at QCA, and um, it was weird. I mean, for me, it was weird and 
uh, I don't know, that year seems like a bit of a blur Weird to me now. how, like, just th- in terms of how intense it was? It or? was really intense. And I think that what I did was I got really into writing and researching and the practical work was kind of put on the um, back burner while I engrossed myself in researching and um, just got so deep into that. Did you enjoy it? Like, I really you loved it. You were enjoying it. I yeah. really loved the writing component of it, whereas most pra- most visual artists are like, fuck the writing. Um, I really liked it. And then it my practice suffered, whereas up until that point, I'd been pretty much all practice-oriented, like yeah. making, making, making lots of stuff, all visual. And probably, if anything, it was the inverse. I wasn't very good at reinterpreting what I was doing visually with writing. Mm-hmm. Um, See, and that's and that's that's interesting that you say that because that's that's exactly. I don't think I've heard about anyone who's gone through an honors program and gone. My practice didn't, in some way, suffer from doing that. Yeah, mm-hmm. at least at the time, because people also equally say, and I want to ask if this is true for you, that like if they hadn't done honors, they wouldn't have had the level of introspection and like additional understanding. Do you feel that? Do you feel it was worth it in that way? Um, I think the I think honors threw me into a world of reading and researching. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really, I kind of, I think that might have even contributed also to the tapping out of making work when I graduated was because I ended up just like consuming myself in reading um, and like learning through like people who were non, not in the visual arts. So yeah, I got really distracted by research um, found it so engaging and uh, was also listening to people from loads of different disciplines. Like I got really into listening to journalists and psychologists and philosophers and I was just kind of really tapping out of what was being said in the arts, in the visual arts, sorry. Um, so now I feel like I'm trying to integrate those two things trying to balance them out, make more work basically. Yeah. Like make, make, make. But I always make images um, on a spectrum of importance that varies. Like this image is for fun. This image is for work. I don't know what you, like what determines work anymore. Um, no, it's, it's blood. Everything's yeah. blood. For me, I think it's about trying to put together a, a system or create a system, sorry, within which I can iterate work. So I'm trying to avoid doing the, here's one project, here's another project. I'm trying to sort of find a trajectory that I can go down for a really long period of time. That kind of, that sort of, because of that, I I think post-grad would be great because then you can get so deep into that, you know? Right, and build, like, a cohesive vision for your practice in the way that, like, auteurs, mm. like, you look and you're like, ah, yes, that's, you know, I'm, I'll think about film, but it's like that's a Paul Thomas Anderson film and I can tell from the way it is shot and framed. Exactly. And, you know, it's probably his camera person as much as it is him and I can't remember who his camera person is his uh what's it called the person who dop fo- yeah dop director of photography yeah i can't remember who his dop is but wow <laughs> what a guy great 
Yeah. Okay. Now, Sorry. I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> go to the bathroom. Um, we should do that. Should we, should we wrap up? We've been yeah. at this for like, I mean, we, so like, we've <laughs> been at this for like a few hours just having conversation. What's the time? It is four o'clock. No way. <laughs> yeah. Let's keep talking, but maybe let's, let's wrap resign. Wrap the podcast um, up. Yeah. Where can people find you online, Julia? Um, I'm about to relaunch my website, which is juliascottgreen.com. Oh, brilliant. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. That's it. Good or communication. You can hit me up on Instagram too, but the website's probably the most uh, I'm sure reliable. The has Instagram links, etc. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much, and we'll keep talking off air. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. <laughs> The House Conspiracy Podcast is produced at House Conspiracy by me, Jonathan O'Brien, and Tyler William Morrison. Mixing and editing by Tyler William Morrison. And music by the Reverend Isha Ramdas. If you'd like to support House Conspiracy, you can do so at houseconspiracy.org donate. And you can learn more about what we offer here at houseconspiracy.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>